are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. I believe that we're on the air right now and want to thank you for joining me on what is, for me, a Thursday afternoon. I don't know where you are and where you're joining us from, but it's a real pleasure to have you here with us. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. Uh, I'm a pastor, I'm a Bible teacher, and some people know me through the Bible commentary that I've had online for more than 25 years, and a fair amount of people use all around the world. Very, very pleased that we can be here today with you for our Thursday, again, afternoon for me, uh, give, uh, giveaway, uh, question and answer time, and giveaways on my mind, because that's what we're doing today. Today, to bless a few of our viewers, we're hosting a giveaway, and we've got two prizes for today's giveaway. The first prize is an Enduring Word mug. Here it is right here, folks. Now, if you want to be sent one of these Enduring Word mugs, which, by the way, we don't sell this kind of stuff. We don't sell merch. I'm not interested in that. But we like to give away things to people. So if you would like one of these, we're going to give away one of them. To enter, you need to, first of all, subscribe to the channel. Uh, number two, you need to type your location to us, country, state, city, whatever. Please, not your postal address into the live chat. Um, you're going to be a subscriber if you're participating. You got to let us know where you're from, city, state, country. And then uh, we will collect all those entries and announce in the video and in the live chat when the entries are closed. That's about 10 minutes before the end of today's program. And then we're going to randomly select a winner from that. We're going to announce it at the very end of today's Q&A. So you have to be present to the end of the show to see if you've won and to claim your prize. And if you're viewing on TWR360, hello, welcome TWR360 audience. Please stop by our YouTube channel and uh, you'll be able to enter in on there. Uh, the official rules for all of this is posted on the video description below. Now, that's prize number one, this mug that we're going to give away to somebody. Prize number two is for our German viewers only. We're going to be giving away a copy of my new German book, Ich stehe auf Gnade, uh, Standing in Grace. Now, that is the German translation of the English book that I've had out for quite a while now. And uh, this is the German translation I'm afraid to say that I was given a copy, but I just, I misplaced it. And so I don't have a copy. That's our cover, Estea auf Gnade. Uh, that is our giveaway today. And let me tell you, if you are viewing live from Germany today in our Q&A, please contact our moderator with your name, and we're going to give you the details at how to receive your book. Um, of course, we want to see your questions, but we want to give away a copy of Standing in Grace to any of our audience in Germany or Austria, whatever it would be, uh, just so that we can bless you today. So get those questions in, and hopefully it's not going to break the bank, but hey, if it does, it does. Praise the Lord. We're happy to be givers. God's blessed us a lot in our ministry by being givers, and so that's what we want to do. All right, now, here's our lead question for today. Here's the lead question. Should Christians push for a third temple in Jerusalem. 
Uh, you know, look, uh, Israel, of course, has been in the news in a big way ever since October 7th and the terrible attacks from Hamas against Israel. And the, the intensity, the level, the death toll, the hostages, all of it together has rightfully garnered a lot of world attention and I hope outrage against Hamas. It's very discouraging to see those people who are supporting Hamas and their methods. Listen, folks, I want you to know, I support the Palestinian people. And I think that the best thing that could be done for the Palestinian people is to have Hamas out of there, to have Hamas no longer be a presence among them. Uh, because I want the Palestinian people, number one, to come to Jesus. There are already, of course, believers among uh, the Palestinian people. But I want them not only to come to Jesus, I want them to live in safe, secure, thriving societies. And that's not going to happen as long as they're ruled by a people who are absolutely committed to destroying the uh, state of Israel. I anyway, because of all these political things going on, uh, there's been more and more interest in Israel. And this oftentimes leads people talking about a temple to be built. And so here's our question. Should Christians push for a third temple in Jerusalem? Now, friends, I believe that there will be a third temple, a Jewish temple on what is now called the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I understand, like many aspects of eschatology, this is something that Christians differ about. And they can differ about it, hopefully in goodwill. They, they can respect one another, despite these differences, but there are some clearly defined differences. I just say that to say, what I'm going to explain to you right now from the scriptures, th there are a fair amount of Christians that would just say they think I'm crazy. No, it's not just me. There's a lot of people who believe what I believe about this, uh, but this is something where there's a diversity of opinion in the Christian world about. But, but I give at least four scriptural reasons why I believe there's going to be a third temple built in Jerusalem. Number one, because of what Daniel said about the daily sacrifice and the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and also Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Let me read to you Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, Presumably, that 1,290 days is until the resolution of all things, what we would call today the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. But notice, Daniel notes that there's going to be daily sacrifice, it's going to be taken away, and the abomination of desolation will be set up. Folks, I, I want you to understand that uh, it's easy to think that this was fulfilled by the desecration of the temple in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes in that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in a sense, it was. But it was done as a prefiguring of an ultimate fulfillment. How do we know that? Because of what Jesus said about the abomination of desolation. But notice here, what Daniel says refers to daily sacrifice being taken away and the abomination of desolation. Daily sacrifice means there's a place to sacrifice. There's an altar in Israel. There's an altar in Jerusalem. There's a place where sacrifice is taking place. Now, here's the second reason why I believe this. Because of what Jesus said about the abomination of desolation and the holy place of the temple in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. This is Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see 
the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Now, friends, I want you to understand the concept of the abomination of desolation is often spiritualized by explaining it as idolatrous worship established in the hearts of God's people. Because there's certainly a sense in which God's people are called the temple of God. But friends, in what sense can the people be called God's temple if they worship the Antichrist, if they worship an emissary of Satan himself? Friends, I don't believe the most plain or straightforward interpretation of this is to see it being something spiritual that happens within the hearts of God's people. The most plain and straightforward understanding of abomination and desolation, standing in the holy place, that refers to a place, a temple. Matter of fact, the most holy place. That's the second reason why I believe this. Then, number three, because of what Paul said about the man of sin and the temple of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Here's that passage of scripture. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Friends, there's no doubt about it. Paul makes a specific reference to a man of sin who sets up some kind of idolatrous image, some kind of idolatrous presence in the temple of God. He sits as God in the temple of God. Now, again, you could spiritualize this and say, well, uh, it's referring to in the hearts of God. But listen, if, the, if this man of sin reigns in someone's heart, they're no longer the temple of God. And so notice this, Paul makes specific reference to a temple of of God having to do again with the last times. And then the final reason I would say this is in Revelation chapter 11. When I say final, this is just the four reasons I'm giving now. I'm not trying to say this is every reason why I believe there's going to be a rebuilt temple. But because of what John said about the temple of God in Revelation chapter 11, and then on into chapters 12 and 13 as well, but I'll just read to you uh, Revelation 11, 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, this reference, along with several other passages in Revelation chapter 11, uh, chapters 11, 12, and 13, gives some kind of reference to the temple. And again, I want you to notice, if you spiritualize this as the people of God, then what's the altar? Then who are those who worship there? If the temple in Revelation chapters 11, 12, and 13 is the people of God, then who's worshiping at the people of God? It just, it doesn't, the best way to take this, the simplest way to explain these passages, Daniel 11 and 12, Matthew chapter 12, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapters 11 through 13, the simplest explanation of all these passages is to see a real Jewish temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that is yet to be built, but I believe there's reason to believe that it's coming soon. In point of fact, 
there are Jewish people very interested in rebuilding the temple and resuming sacrifice, and they're making preparations to do those exact things even now. Today, you can visit the Temple Institute in the Jewish quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. And there, a group of Jewish people absolutely dedicated to rebuilding the temple, they're attempting to educate the public and raise awareness for a new temple. They're trying to replicate everything they can for a new temple down to the specific pots and pans used in sacrifice. So Israel obviously is a nation again, and efforts to rebuild the temple are for real. Again, the main Jewish group leading the charge to rebuild the temple is an organization called the Faithful of the Temple Mount. And they say they're going to continue their efforts to reestablish the Jewish temple on the Mount, uh, on the Temple Mount. One leader in the group says, we shall continue our struggle until the Israeli flag is flying from the Dome of the Rock. Obviously, this is very inflammatory to the Muslims who regard the Dome of the Rock as one of their very important shrines. Nevertheless, in Israel, there are students being trained for the priesthood, learning how to conduct animal sacrifices for that rebuilt temple. Now, having said all that, it's very important to understand that most Jews, whether they be religious or secular, do not care one bit about building a temple. This is a minority movement. And I got to say, if a third temple was built, Sacrifice would be very difficult in a day of aggressive animal rights activists. Yet, nevertheless, there is a small, strong, highly dedicated group who live to see a rebuilt temple, a temple that will fulfill prophecy. Now, many Christians get excited when they see efforts to rebuild the temple. And listen, in an aspect, I understand that. They say it's prophecy being fulfilled right before their eyes. But at the same time, Christians should understand that the basic impulse behind rebuilding the temple is not of God at all. You see, the basic impulse in rebuilding a temple is a desire to have a place to sacrifice for sin. And Christians believe that all sacrifice for sin was finished at the cross. As a matter of fact, we believe that any further sacrifice for sin is an offense to God because it denies the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So friends, I think that believers, and this is what I teach, this is what I recommend to believers, you should appropriately have mixed feelings when you see efforts towards building another temple, a third temple. Because, yes, there's a sense in which this would be prophecy right before our eyes, but no, no, Jesus Christ is the enduring sacrifice for sin. Friends, let me explain it to you this way. If this is God's prophetic plan, and I've just given you a quick summary of why I believe it, those four passages, Daniel 11 and 12, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation chapters 11 through 13, it, it if we understand that to be God's prophetic plan, I understand not everybody agrees with that. Uh, the majority of Christians throughout the ages have not agreed with it. But if this is God's prophetic plan, then it's going to happen whether Christians are excited about it or not. Our excitement level over it doesn't affect whether it's going to happen or not. And it's also true 
that believers should temper any excitement they may have over this with the knowledge that those who would build the temple would not be doing it for any Christian purpose. Now, in this sense, Christians shouldn't support, so to speak, the building of the temple. If they believe it's in God's plan, then let God work it. We don't need to support it, so to speak. Now, let me put it to you this way. I wouldn't contribute money for a third temple, but I would likely visit it if I had the opportunity. Now, I'm thinking I wouldn't be around for it, but let's speak hypothetically, just speaking purely hypothetically. Why would I hypothetically visit a third temple? Again, I wouldn't even be allowed beyond the court of the Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. But why would I visit as much as I could? I'll tell you why. Because the apostle Paul did. It's often overlooked that Paul participated in temple rituals as a Christian, as an apostle. In Acts chapter 18, Paul went to Jerusalem with a handful of hair that he had cut off in a vow, where almost certainly the hair was offered at the temple for the completion of a Nazarite vow. That's Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 22. And then in Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 23, Paul sponsored four Christians from Jewish backgrounds who were completing a vow of dedication at the temple. He went to the temple with them for the ceremonies. Now, friends, these were not ceremonies or sacrifices related to atonement, but for dedication or consecration, and apparently permitted for Christians. But by any measure, with these two actions in Acts 18 and Acts 21, the apostle Paul, not to speak of James and the rest of the community there in Jerusalem, endorsed this. Again, not for atonement. Paul would probably get in a fist fight with you if you suggested that he should go to the temple for the atonement of sin. No, never. But for dedication, for gratitude, for consecration, Paul participated in temple ceremonies. Fascinating. All right. I, I hope that sort of spells it out for you. Uh, I, let me mention again, because I'm supposing that we got a few more viewers now than we had before. Uh, welcome here. But what we're doing today is we're talking about our giveaway. We got two giveaways. Number one, an Enduring Word mug. This attractive ceramic Enduring Word mug can be yours. You can't buy this mug, but we give them away. If you want one of these mugs, you need to type your location, country, state, city, whatever you prefer, into the live chat, and then you need to hang around until the end of our time, because about 10 minutes before the hour, so about a half hour from now, we're going to close these uh, entries, and when we close the entries, then we're going to do a random selection, but folks, please remember, if you want to win this mug, you got to stay with us until the end. You got to stay with us to the end so that you know that you won. We'll announce your name or your screen name, whatever it is. Uh, we'll announce it over. Uh, I'll announce it. We'll put it in the live chat and then tell you how to contact us so that you can give us your mailing address and we'll send you your free mug. And then also, I want to say it one more time, for our German or Austrian viewers, we want to give you a book. 
It's the book Ich stehe auf Gnade, Standing in Grace. It's the German translation of my English book, Standing in Grace. By the way, may I say, we're also very excited to say that we have a Spanish translation of this coming out very soon, uh, translating this book into Spanish. And But we want you, our German audience, to have a copy of our book, Ich stehe auf Gnade, Standing in Grace. Uh, I think it's a helpful book. It really came out of a time in my life when I believe God was teaching me a lot about grace. And we just want anybody who's viewing us live from Germany or Austria or somewhere in Europe, Switzerland, I guess, as well. If you uh, let us know, we will send you the information and we will send one of these books to you. Uh, we're excited about people getting it and letting them know. So there you go. All right, I think we're ready to go over to our live chat. Let me see about that, the live chat today. Um, let me get set up for this. Okay, here we go. Adonis asks, does the Bible teach that Christians must give at least 10% of their income tithing? What verses support your view? Okay, Adonis, um, I'm going to take the question exactly as you have asked it. Does the Bible teach that Christians must give at least 10% of their income? What verses support you? Adonis, I would answer that question as no. The Bible does not teach that Christians must give at least 10% of their income. However, what the Bible does teach is that Christians should be givers and the Bible gives the pattern of the tithe from the Old Testament, and the Bible speaks of the tithe approvingly in the New Testament. Now, I don't think that those things automatically add up to a command, but it is certainly an encouragement, a suggestion. So I would say this, Adonis, Christians are commanded to be givers. Now, look, you're asking for scriptures, uh, to me, the most helpful area of the Bible, talking about giving, is found in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapters 8 and 9, whatever those chapters are where Paul talks about taking the collection, and in 1 Corinthians. Paul's communication with the Corinthians about giving is the most destructive. And from those passages, we learned that giving is something for all believers. We learned that we're supposed to give because God is a giver, and we're supposed to give proportionally. In other words, Paul says, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that as we have been blessed, we should give. That's the idea of proportion. Those who have been blessed more should give more. Now, what proportion should a Christian give? I think they should aim for 10%. That's been the practice of my wife, Inga Lil, and I and our family for, well, our whole married life. I'm not going to say we've legalistically kept it, but that's been our general pattern, our general rule. We give 10% of our income. I think that that is a biblical pattern, but God does not emphasize the tithe in the New Testament. He speaks of it approvingly. Anytime the tithe is mentioned in the New Testament, it's mentioned with approval. So it's mentioned with approval, but it is not commanded in the New Testament. So again, does the Bible teach that Christians must give at least 10% of their income? No, but I think it teaches that they must be givers and that 10% is a good goal. 
is a good guideline, is a good target for giving. Um, Here's one other thing to say. I think one reason why, not the only reason, but one reason why the New Testament does not emphasize the tithe is because many believers should give more. They should give more than 10%. That's just how it is. They should give more than 10%. So that's something for you to consider. Thank you for that question, Adonis. Next comes from Brian, who asks, on a scale of one to 10, how confident are you in a pre-tribulation rapture? Um, okay, Brian, let me just explain it to you. I'll give you the number in a moment. I'm very confident of it biblically. I believe that that's what the Bible teaches. But I always want to allow for the, uh, uh, the possibility that I'm wrong in my biblical understanding. Uh, shouldn't we all have that place <laughs> to, to understand that we could be wrong? But if you ask me to assign a number to it, I would give it an eight or a nine, eight or a nine. I, I'm very confident that this is what the Bible teaches. Uh, not only premillennialism, but also the pre-tribulation rapture idea. I'm very confident that the Bible teaches that. If you want videos that speak specifically about that, you can go to our YouTube channel and just search for that. There's obviously videos out there. Or you can go to the relevant passages in my commentary at EnduringWord.com, and that would be helpful for you as well. So thanks for that, Brian. Uh, Najeri, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, asks this. Do we know or are we told how Abraham was able to tell that the beings who met him in Genesis 18.2 were holy? Uh, It appears that the greetings he gave them were customary as Lot in chapter 19 did the same. Okay, let me read the relevant passage here. Genesis chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. So he lifted his eyes and looked. This is speaking of Abraham. He lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw him, them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, my Lord, if I've now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Okay, Najeri, I'm going to question kind of the premise of your question. Uh, I don't know that Genesis chapter 18 verses 2 and 3 tells us that Abraham recognized his guests as holy. I think we could say that it tells us that he recognized his guests as being honorable, uh, men of dignity, for sure. But I don't know that that translates to holiness as if they were divine beings. Abraham found that out later in his conversation with the one who left behind, was, was stayed behind when the other two went on to Sodom and Gomorrah, or actually just the city of Sodom. But uh, the tradition of great hospitality was very established in the Eastern world. And what we would say here in verses two and three, bowing down to the ground in the way that he did, I think he would say that this was um, great, maybe even excessive in the eyes of some people. Yet nevertheless, I think that it, it, it is in keeping with that general thing. I don't think that Abraham immediately understood that these were two angelic beings and the Lord himself until they started conversing. I think that was the context in which he had it. So I don't think that there was anything to immediately tell Abraham, these are holy beings or these are divine beings. He came to understand that 
in his time with them. Okay? Thank you for that question there, Najiri. I hope you're giving us your location, oh, subscribers, uh, because on the live chat, we're going to give away one of these mugs. About 10 minutes before the end of the hour, we're going to close our entries, do a random choice, and then uh, you need to stay around to the end so that we can contact you so that you can get your Enduring Word mug. Not sold online, not sold in stores. You can enjoy your tea, coffee, whatever, with an Enduring Word mug. Whatever. Why am I even talking like that? Let's get to the next question. Uh, Miss Jeremiah 31 says, or asks, how should I interpret repeated statements by a senior church elder that he doesn't want to do pastoring, but he only wants to teach, especially as the only other elder is not gifted in pastoring? Well, Miss Jeremiah, how should you interpret that? I think you should interpret that as an elder who doesn't really want to fulfill his role. I mean, really, that's it. The job of elders and pastors is to shepherd the sheep, to be involved in the lives of their people. And listen, I am the first one to tell you that this doesn't come easy for everyone, number one, and it can be exhausting dealing with the congregation. Um, not exhausting because the congregation makes it exhausting necessarily, but just to be involved spiritually, practically in the lives of people and to care about them and to love them and to try to serve them, it, it at times requires a lot. Not, not all the time. Listen, let me tell you. Now, I, I am no longer actively pastoring a church. I stepped away from that a little more than six years ago to give full concentration to the work I do with the Bible commentary and enduring word. But for basically 30 years, I've served as a pastor. And I would explain that work like this. I would say, often the work of the pastor is like a dream. You just got to pinch yourself. I can't believe I get to do this. Thank you, Lord. Most of the time. But there are times when the work of a pastor feels like a nightmare and you feel like nothing is worth doing this. So which is it? A dream or a nightmare? It kind of depends on the time. So uh, I understand it costs something of us. And I believe that there is a role among God's people for people who are just teachers and not necessarily pastorally involved in the congregation. But a congregation needs pastors. They need people who will be men of character, men who fit the qualifications in Titus and 1 Timothy about the kind of leaders men of God should be, and that will pastorally care for the people. So you want to say, how should you interpret it? Uh, Miss Jeremiah, you should interpret it as that man doesn't understand the role and the calling of eldership and a pastorate. Hope, hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Vincent asks, hello, Pastor David, how should Christians regard Christian rock music watching in Nairobi? Vincent, thank you for tuning in from Nairobi. God bless you and our fellow African brothers and sisters. I'm so pleased that some of you could be joining us today. Uh, Vincent, how should Christians regard Christian rock music? Um, I think it's a matter of conscience for the individual Christian. I don't believe there's anything biblical saying all Christians 
must reject Christian rock music. I don't think there's anything biblical that says all Christians must receive or accept or listen to Christian rock music. I believe that it's a matter between the Spirit of God and the individual believer. So, Vincent, if you were telling me that you feel God doesn't want me to listen to this, I would say, Vincent, then with all your heart, do what you believe God is directing you to do. Don't listen to it. But don't judge your brother or sister who feels that they do have the liberty for it. And don't feel that you're superior to them. Just do what you believe God is directing you to do. That's all there is to it. This is an area of Christian liberty, unless someone could see some clear bad effect that it might be having in somebody's life. Then that might give opportunity for another brother or sister to admonish someone among God's family. Um, so this is an area of Christian liberty. The Bible doesn't spell out specifically what kinds of music Christians should or should not listen to. Music can have all kinds of associations with people, with their past, with their present, whatever it is. So uh, I really believe it's a matter of individual dealing with the Holy Spirit and the individual believer. Which, by the way, I need to do a video on this sometime. Folks, we're losing sight of this. Now, Vincent, I'm not taking this out on you. Your, your question is wonderful, and I'm happy to answer it. But I just mean in, in general. I think Christians are losing sight of the fact that the Holy Spirit has the right and has the ability to deal individually with believers. And in these matters of Christian liberty, the Holy Spirit can direct a person, this is yes for you, and another believer, he says, this is no for you. And it's totally fine. It, it's being led by the Spirit. So, Thank you for your question there, Vincent. Next question comes from Daughter of the King, who asks, Can you explain sanctification being from God? Aren't we responsible for our own growth also? Should a believer expect sanctification? Daughter of the King, you're asking a great question, because actually, throughout Christian understanding, there's been different perspectives on sanctification. Uh, some people believe that sanctification happens uh, as a process and as a process alone. Some people believe that sanctification happens at crisis moments in a Christian's life. There's a crisis moment where you say, I'm really going to be set apart to God. And then there's other believers who stress the idea that sanctification is God's work in the believer. Well, actually, I think all three of those have aspects of truth. There's an aspect of sanctification that is God's work in us. Certainly, daughter of the king, we cannot do the work of sanctification on our own. No, never. It's laughable to think that. Even if a Christian's involvement is required in the work of sanctification, then it's involvement that can only happen as God works in and through that believer. So there's an aspect of sanctification that is God's work. There's an aspect of it that is a process over a long period. But there are also, I think, crisis points in sanctification. Um, maybe you've experienced something like that, where it, you just have a critical moment in your Christian life where you go, you know what? Today, I got to get right with God. 
Today, I got to put away this foolishness. Today, I have to repent of this besetting sin. Today, I have to stop my backsliding, whatever it is. So I, I believe that there is truth in all three of these ideas, that sanctification is God's work, that it is our work over a process, and that it is our work uh, at crisis points. I think all three of those are true, and all three of them should be understood. Uh, I probably got some video on this on our YouTube channel. Just search for sanctification on uh, my YouTube channel, and I think that'll be helpful for you. Uh, or else, look up my commentary on Romans chapter 12. That would be helpful for you as well. Uh, I, I mentioned my commentary because you may or may not know that I have a verse-by-verse -verse commentary throughout the entire Bible. It's available absolutely free. Folks, we don't have VIP zones. We don't have memberships. We don't even require an email sign-up. It's just out there for you to use. Go to it at EnduringWord.com. All right, let me say again. I'm trying to give notice of this throughout. Uh, number one, we have a book for our German-speaking viewers right now. Now, this is for our live viewers, and the book is Ishtea auf Gnade. That's uh, the translation of my book. It's Standing in Grace into German, and uh, it's a great book. Oh, I, I, look, no, let me say this. Writing that book was great for me. <laughs> if it's a blessing for other people, that's icing on the cake, but that book comes out of a real time of God ministering to me a lot of truth about his grace. So I'm so excited to say we've translated it into German. Very soon it'll be available in Spanish, and uh, we want to give it to any of our live German or Austrian or Swiss viewers. You just got to let us know. Uh, give us contact, and our moderator will know how to confirm. He may confirm that you're actually German by chatting with you in German. I don't know. Maybe he will. Our mystery moderator, I, I do know this, he knows German and can speak to you in that. Anyway, but the other do, thing we're doing is we're giving away an Enduring Word mug. Tell us where you're from, city, state, country, whatever. You'll be put into our entry for this, and we will ship it off to you. Um, I heard from a viewer today. I just saw it in the chat. Uh, maybe he won a previous contest, and he said he never got his mug. If that's you, please contact us again. We're very sorry about it because we want to make this right, very much so. Man, we, we want to make things right. If, if we trip up somewhere, look, nobody's perfect, but we want to make things right. We're going to stop the entries for the mug in about 12 minutes. We're going to cut off entries to give our team time to do a random selection, and then we're going to announce the winner. You've got to stay around to the end if you want to know that it's you. All right. Matter of fact, we got to get a response from you to know that it's you. If we don't get a response, we're going to keep on going. All right, next question today comes from Kevin, who says, I've been struggling with quitting looking at certain illicit material for eight years now, and I don't know what else to do. I study my Bible and memorize. I pray and I fast too, but I still fall. What should I do? Kevin, God bless you, brother. I'm sorry to hear about your struggle, but please know this. Your struggle is not every person's struggle, but every believer has some kind of struggle like whatever you have. Every believer has to struggle against sin. And Kevin, what most encourages me about your question is you're hanging in there. 
You haven't given up. You see, if you want to know what should you do, the first thing I would tell you is keep walking with Jesus. Keep bringing it to Jesus. Kevin, it's very possible for a person to stumble, but not to fall, or at least not to fall away. And what you're doing is you're saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I have trouble with this besetting sin. It grieves me. I've blown it again. I come to you. Would you please forgive me? I throw myself upon you. Listen, Kevin, the Lord cherishes that. Keep going in your walk with God. That's number one. Number two, Kevin, you're doing many of the things that I would recommend. You say you've studied your Bible, you've memorized, you've prayed, you've fasted. Kevin, here's the one thing that you don't mention, and, and I'm not saying this because I know that you haven't done this, but just when we, we mention, the one thing that you didn't mention is making yourself accountable to a brother regarding this. And Kevin, that's what I would recommend to you, dear brother, that you would find a brother, n- not a sister, you, you're a man, take it from the basis of your name, Kevin, you need to find a brother and if there was a sister, a, a Christian woman involved, she should find a Christian woman to make herself accountable to. But find yourself a brother that you can respect and just tell them, I'm struggling with this. I need some accountability. Would you ask me about this often and pray with me about it? Kevin, for many people, that is a missing aspect in their struggle against sin. And listen, I'm not saying that you have to run to somebody to be accountable to. First, you've done the things, but you know what? If all that hasn't really made it click yet, make yourself accountable to somebody. And Kevin, find somebody who will be tough on you. Ask them to be tough on you. And determine in your heart that you will not lie to them. That you're just going to be honest before them. Keep going and make yourself accountable. Those are the two things I would tell you, Kevin. God bless you and thank you for your question. Next question comes from Juan, who asks, is the Spirit of God as written in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 the same as the Holy Spirit? Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. One that's a very easy question to ask. I'll just give it to you directly. Yes. Yes. It's the same. The same right there in uh, Genesis chapter 1 2. That is the Holy Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of God working right there. So thank you for that question. Hey, before, oh no, let me go on to the next question from Andrea uh, or Andrea. Following up on Mrs. Jeremiah's question about an elder who doesn't want to do pastoring anymore. Is the role of the pastor and elder in a church the same? Uh, Andrea, I would answer that by saying pretty much. Um, There is a lot of overlap between the descriptions elder, overseer, pastor. Those, if you were to make circles out of each one of them, there would be a lot of overlap. You can make some fine distinctions between them, but elders should have godly character, of course, but the heart of a pastor. Now, here's something that I think is a difference. 
The Bible does make a distinction between elders who rule, and it talks about elders who teach. So not every elder teaches. That's the implication of of that text there in 1 Timothy. So not necessarily every, now elders should be able to teach, but able to teach can mean on a one-on-one setting. But as far as teaching a congregation, not necessarily every elder is capable of that. So there's some fine distinctions, but basically the roles of elder, pastor, and overseer all overlap substantially. I know there's some people saying that they're identical. For some reason, I can't bring myself to say they're identical, but I do say that they have a very significant overlap. So basically, yes, is the answer I would do. I could try to make some fine distinctions, but basically elder, overseer, pastor, they're, they're roughly the same kind of descriptions. Okay, thank you for that, Andrea. Next question comes from Spirit Warrior, who asks, is the gift of healing prevalent today, or would you say that healings we see today are more of a prayer of faith for others? I believe nine gifts are valid, maybe not as in Paul's day. Okay, Spirit Warrior, I'm going to give you my take on this. And um, I've recorded a series of videos that we're going to come out with before too long. 10 reasons why I think cessationism is wrong. Cessationism is the idea that the gifts of the Spirit, or at least all the gifts of the Spirit, are no longer operational today. And I made a series of 10 videos explaining 10 reasons why I believe that cessationism is wrong, because I do believe it's wrong. Well, I think that regarding the gift of healing, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding. I think that there's the idea that people in the Bible who had the gift of healing could just kind of go around and go, wham, you're healed, and wham, you're healed, as if it was in complete control of the person who had the gift. I don't see that being consistent. Now, there certainly were some unusual aspects, but I would argue that not even in Jesus Christ— was it completely that way? Because Jesus said that he only did the things that the Father told him to do. Even Jesus's exercise of the healings that he did were something that he understood that in each individual situation, God the Father said, do that. So, I don't think that the gift of healing ever has operated, even in the apostles, by someone's own initiative. I want to heal that guy. I want to heal that guy. I want to heal that guy. No, no. It was all done under the direction and authority of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So your question is, is it prevalent today? All right, uh, Spirit Warrior, I would say I don't see it. What, What I would regard as the legitimate gift of healing, which would operate something on the laying on of hands and people are healed. Not not just kind of this, you know, ray gun kind of, you know, boom, 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 you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. That's let the weird televangelists do that kind of nonsense. That's not biblical. That's not how the gift of healing operated in the Bible or 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 how it should operate today. But that God 
may use specific individuals in unusual ways for healing. I, I can believe that, but I, I don't think it's prevalent. I think it's uh, somewhat rare in the world today, at least in the Western world. Um, you see these things more so out on the frontiers of where the gospel is going. That's just the nature of how things these things are. So that's true. All right, folks, let me just say, before I get to the next question from Dan, here's my next question, Dan, or excuse me, question before I get to the question from Dan. Last chance, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to cut off our uh, giveaway for this mug. You need to get your message, you need to get your screen name and your location to us, not your address, just city, state, country, wherever, uh, in the next couple minutes, because in just like two minutes, I'm going to cut this off and we're no longer going to do it. And then we're going to choose randomly. And then if you are in Germany or Austria or Switzerland or something like that, and you want a copy of my new book, Ich stehe auf Gnade, well, it's not a new book, newly translated book, uh, let us know and we'll send you one. That's for all of that German audience. Okay, uh, next question from Dan. Do you think some people overemphasize the rapture instead of the resurrection? Uh, Dan, I, I, I think that that's definitely possible. It's certainly possible that there are people who emphasize the rapture instead of the resurrection. Surely, even though I do believe in what is called the harpazo, the catching away of the church, uh, commonly called the rapture, that's not the best biblical term for it, but look, it's right there in 1 Thessalonians. Um, even though I believe in that, it's certainly not emphasized in the New Testament the way that the resurrection is. Although we would say that for those who are on the earth, this catching away or this rapture is a doorway, is the gateway to resurrection for them. So, uh, yeah, some people overemphasize. The, the resurrection is certainly a bigger idea in the scriptures than the event of the catching away of the church, uh, the rapture being caught up in the clouds. Next question comes from Eric, who says, In Amos, there's mention of a time where God will be silent. Did this silence happen between Micah and Jesus, or is this period of silence happened after Jesus and is still presently happening? Eric, I would say that it was in the intertestamental period. The Jewish people were very aware that God had stopped speaking to his people, whereas the New Testament teaches that God continues to speak to his sheep, and especially through his authoritative revelation, God's word. So, yeah, Eric, I would put that time of silence in the period between the Testaments, uh, from the close of um, Old Testament prophecy, uh, the prophet Malachi, to uh, the initial work of revelation in the New Testament times through John the Baptist, or actually to Zacharias, his parent, his father. But that's another issue. Thank you there for that question, Eric. Whoa, hey. I'm looking at the clock. It's 10 minutes to the hour right now. We're closing entries now. Moderator, close it. Annie, close it. Uh, get your list together. Do the random choice. And then you can get back to me and let me know who our winner today is of the muck. Uh, oh, I, I got a note from management here. Um, Standing in Grace in Spanish is already available, and you can get it at our website, um, EnduringWord.com. 
Just go to the store and you can find it in Spanish. So it is already available in Spanish. Um, listen, this is why I need help. And I got a lot of good help around me, believe me. So our entries are closed for the mug giveaway. Um, in a few minutes, when I get word back from our staff, we will let you know who our winner is for today. You got to hang on. If you're the winner and you leave and we don't hear back from you, we're going to give it away to somebody else. So hang around. Okay, uh, next question comes from Quint. Hello from Columbia, and thanks for your Q&A, Pastor David. My question refers to 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. Was it the Lord or Satan who incited David to take a census? Thanks, and looking forward to your help. All right, Quint, man, what a good question. Was it the Lord or was it Satan? Quint, let me ask you, answer that question. Was it the Lord or was it Satan? Yes. What do I mean by that? Well, I think Satan brought the temptation, but it was allowed by God because God wanted to do a greater work. Listen, this is something that we see in scriptures from time to time. There is the um, understanding that even with the works that Satan does, they are clearly allowed by God, right? At the end of it, Satan doesn't do anything except what God allows him to do. That's just the way that it works. So was it done by Satan or by the Lord? We would say both because Satan's role was in the act of initiating of it. God's role was in the allowing of it. So both had a hand in it, you could say. Um, you, you could say the same thing was true of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Did that come from Satan or did it come from the Lord? Yes, God, the Father, clearly allowed Satan to come with that temptation, but it was Satan doing the activity. Both, you could say, had a hand in it. All right, folks, we're here with the lightning round, and at the end of the lightning round, we're going to announce our winner. So are you ready here? Here we go. Or maybe I'll do it in the middle of the lightning round if I have it. Okay, uh, Tunnelbanan Shugotre says, hello from Sweden. Did Satan become evil before the days in Genesis began? Uh, Tunnel Banana, I, I would say, uh, you know what? I have a tough time with that question, Tunnel Banana. Again, not because I, I don't have an answer. Well, it is because I don't, because I, I could take it either way. Um, when we read in Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that speaking of the entire universe and cosmos? If so, that's our beginning thing. If it means the sky and the earth that we see right now, and the earth that we dwell on right now, of course, then that's a different answer. I would say, I would say likely before Genesis. The angelic beings were created and they fell away, likely before Genesis 1-1, but I can't be dogmatic about it. I, I could also construct a scenario where it happened after Genesis 1-1. So I hope that's helpful for you there. Matt asks a question. Shalom, glad to be here. My question is, what is the base for the Catholic Church to claim that they gave us the Bible? Well, th this is how they, they construct that argument. They say, um, we wouldn't know what the books of the Bible are apart from the 
church telling us. It's the church that told us what the Bible was. It's the church that gathered the Bible for us. So in a sense, the church is greater than or equal to the Bible. But friends, I don't think that's the case at all. The church didn't create the Bible. The church simply recognized it. And it would be the Bible, God's eternal, enduring word, whether the church recognized it or not. So that's the way I would phrase it. Let me move my microphone up just a little bit there. Okay, so um, that's the basis of it. They just say the church existed before the Bible, the church chose the Bible, the church produced the Bible, therefore the church is superior to or equal to the Bible. And, and of course, they would say the Roman Catholic Church is. And again, I would disagree on both counts. Okay, uh, next question comes from Asia, who asks, Ruth married Boaz in order to carry on the family name of Mahalon. Why is Obed reckoned Boaz's son and not Mahlon's? Hmm. You know what, Asia? That is a tremendous question that I've never considered before. And uh, moderator, help me to remember that question and we'll, I'll try to answer it next week. Asia? I've never thought of that question before, and I do not have an answer for you. I'll try to get back to you next week. Thank you for that. Uh, next question comes from Bob. Would all Israel be saved in the end, and how is this distinguished from the 144,000? All right, again, Bob, I give the caveat, as I always give, regarding eschatological things. Uh, Christians have disagreements on these things, but I'll give you my answer. I'll simply say this, that... Um, yes, all Israel is saved in the end, but there's a particular role that God has for the 144 Jewish converts there in the very last days described in the book of Revelation. God has a special purpose for those 140, probably as a first fruits to reach the rest of Israel. Um, yeah, so that, that's how I would describe it. They are a first fruits that God will use to reach all of Israel. And again, I don't think the scriptures clearly say that, I'll be honest with you, but I think that's a valid implication to draw. Thank you for that question, Bob. Uh, next question comes from the sweet P who asks, if I don't speak in tongues, does that mean I don't have the Holy Spirit? What exactly is it and how do I make it happen or should I try to make it will to happen for me? Okay, sweet P. People should not seek the gift of tongues to prove they have the Holy Spirit. Not to prove it to themselves, not to prove it to the pastor, not to prove it to their friends. Don't seek the gift of tongues because you need to prove to yourself or to somebody else that you really have the Holy Spirit. No. Sweet pea, you should seek God for the gift of tongues if, if you feel you are lacking in your communication with him. Let's remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I talk about this in my um, 10 Reasons Why Cessationism is Wrong uh, series that we'll be putting out in some weeks ahead. Here's the thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that... Uh, 
He who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but to God. It is not given by God as a tool of communication between person to person, but from person to God. This is what I say to people who want me to pray for them that they would receive the gift of tongues. I ask them, do you ever feel lost in your time of prayer with God that there's more in your heart and mind that you can express to God? Do you ever feel limited by your ability to praise God the way that you want to? Do you ever feel limited in your ability to communicate with God? If the person says back to me, no, I never feel like that. I say, great. When you come, when you feel like you do have that, then come back to me and let's see what God does with that. Let's pray for you to receive the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues should not be sought as evidence that one is filled with the Holy Spirit. The evidence that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit in their life. That's the evidence that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The gift of tongues is a tool of communication between the believer and God. So that's how I would express it to you there, sweet pea. Uh, And you simply pray. And if God puts unknown words in your mind, you can speak them when you pray to receive the gift of tongues. If he doesn't, don't try to fake it. Don't worry about it. When God knows you need this gift, he'll give it to you. That's how I would express it. All right. One more answer to a question, and then we're going to get to our winner. We have a winner. Wonderful to hear it. Last question of the lightning round comes from Meg, who asks, are personal prophetic words, healing, job, life, direction, biblical? Um, Meg, they can be. Uh, We have examples in the New Testament where God spoke prophetically to individuals, and the Bible does talk about the gifts of the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, And so it can be most of what goes on today under those headings is foolishness. It just is. It's made up. But God, can God, by the gifting of the Holy Spirit, uh, speak to an individual through another person? Yes, he can. But, Meg, all these words should be judged. Judge the prophets. If somebody says, the Lord told me to tell you this, blah, 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 do not accept it. If it's first judge it by God's word, this is the absolute standard by which to judge everything else. Then second, second, judge it by the wisdom of godly people in your life. Judge prophetic words. Christians fall into great error when they fail to do this. Okay, here's our winner. Jerry Arnstutz in Northeast Indiana You have won the mug. Thank you, Jerry, for reaching out to us and sharing your information. We will mail you that one. And listen, to the fellow who said that you won a mug and we didn't send it, please get in contact. You deserve your mug. We want to get to you. But Jerry Amstutz, I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Jerry, thank you for viewing. And um, wonderful. And listen, German viewers, I'm so happy that you're reaching out to us to receive Ich stehe auf Gnade. Uh, the translation of our book, and it's also available in Spanish. You can find them on our Enduring Word store. Folks, next week, we're going to have another giveaway. Um, We're doing a lot of giveaways. It's the holiday season. Join us. I guess we're going to be doing a lot of them weeks ahead. Listen, I'm not in charge of this stuff. People tell me what we're doing, and we're going to do a lot of giveaways, so I'm happy about that. I will say this. Enduring Word, we don't sell, we sell books, but we don't sell merchandise and such. Um, But 99 plus percent of our content 
is given away absolutely free online. And it's done because of the generosity of our donors. Uh, we're in our year-end campaign. If you think to donate to Enduring, pray about it. If God gives you the freedom, it'll be put to good use. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Hey, everybody, thank you for joining us. I want to thank our team, all of our team uh, together. Thank you so much for doing a great work today. Uh, God bless you, Jerry. We're going to be sending you a mug. I hope you enjoy it. And we're going to have a giveaway next week. Yes, we actually will. We'll do it next week as well. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to be here with you today. God bless you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.